0: You're listening to Monday Morning Live, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought
1: to you by the Michigan Municipal League. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of Monday Morning Live, the podcast and Facebook feed and the webinar, I guess it's, a, it's also a webinar format. So uh, all those things. I am Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League. And once again, I'm joined here with our Lansing team. We got on, on, on the, the program here, Chris Hackbarth, Jennifer Rigterink, and uh, John Lamacchio will be joining us shortly. Uh, Betsy is also standby to help me go through any questions that you uh, may be sending us. If you do have questions, feel free to post them in the chat box here on this webinar, or if you're watching on Facebook, you can post in the comments, and Betsy will let me know what those are. So, uh, kind of a, a a big week. I'm told, Chris, there was some some kind of big thing that happened last week. I don't know; it was an election or or something like that. Or something going on. So I went, to,
2: I
3: went to Florida. It was great.
1: You went to Florida. You just disappeared.
3: <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it was. I, I kept having to hit refresh on my web browsers the whole week. So, no, as uh, I'm sure everyone else did, we uh, we had a kind of an interesting, longer week of Tuesdays um, last week. uh, Everyone knows the results of the the presidential campaign and and some of the lengths that people went to in the different counties to get the the counting done. I know we had Kent and Genesee and Wayne and and Oakland and Kalamazoo, there were uh, Ingham. I know there were folks kind of waiting on some of those returns and how those might impact the presidential race. But as we looked at the impact on the state house races, We had all 110 members of the Michigan House up. Uh, And the current GOP Democratic balance of power, there was a lot of speculation in the months leading up to the election. Uh, What was going to happen? What was going to happen in Oakland County? Uh, You had three Republican seats in Oakland County that were being targeted by the Democrats. You had a seat in Kalamazoo County. You had a seat in Traverse City. Um, So there was a lot of speculation about could there be a change in power? and I think as we saw kind of nationally, uh, things, were, things were close. And uh, we ended up with exactly the same partisan split. Uh, the Republicans maintained majority in the House, the State House, uh, 58 to 52 majority, the same margin they have currently. The Democrats were able to, House Democrats were able to flip to open seats, uh, the seat in Portage, uh, and then a seat in Oakland County in the Novi area. But the they did lose two incumbents, uh, which is a little surprising given this this year. Uh, so the uh, the Democrats lost an incumbent uh, representative in the Bay City area, uh, and uh, lost another incumbent. So it was a, you know, it was a in the Genesee County, outer Genesee County. So it was uh, kind of a surprise, I think, for a lot of the prognosticators, as you looked at the, the pollsters around the state and how they got things wrong at the at the federal level, there was, uh, they, they got some things wrong at the state level as well. So, you know, I think that, you know, as we look at, at this coming term, it'll be interesting to see just this continuation of divided power that we've had these last two years uh, with Governor Whitmer. How will that play out in the, in the coming two years?
1: right and as you mentioned that there weren't any uh, senate races that were up but we did have a couple that looks like might be opening now
3: you're getting a little choppy there matt okay oh, uh, so yes we had two so in addition to the state house seats that were up we had two uh state senators that were running for county office county-wide office and so senator pete mcgregor out of kent county won his election to be kent county treasurer and Senator uh, Pete Lucido out of Macomb County, won his election to be county prosecutor. So those two seats will now open up, and sometime here in uh, in the course of 2021, uh, we expect Governor Whitmer to call a special election for those two Senate seats. And so that then changes the dynamic a little bit in the Senate as well. Uh, you know, starting in January when those two senators are gone, the the Republican majority will be at 20 seats instead of at 22. So so it kind of changes the dynamic a little bit until those specials are filled, right? And then some people hopefully my sound better.
1: Uh, oh, no, it's not, not better. better. <laughs> That's <weird>. Let me <laughs> let me turn, turn off my camera. Maybe that'll help. Oh. Um, uh, so hope uh, it always helps does... when
3: you turn off your camera, Matt. <laughs>
1: yeah, thank you. Uh, what does this? I know they're doing the redistricting thing. Where does that process stand, and when will that part? When will that affect? What election will that most impact?
3: So I know uh, in our last Monday morning live, we had Kelly Warren from our team on talking a little bit about the kind of the update on the census. And those numbers, I think, John and Jen, correct me, I believe the official numbers will come in in the first half of 21 from, and I think the president announces those numbers. Uh, And then those numbers are transmitted to each state. And then the state will begin the process. And obviously by April of 22, we have to know, the new, the new maps so that the filing deadline in 22, by that filing deadline, candidates know what seats they will be filing for. So in 2022, uh, these maps that will be drawn based upon the 20 census, that's when those maps will go into effect. So really, you know, if it takes until March, uh, April, you'll have about one year, less than one year for the re- new redistricting committee to draw their maps.
1: Okay. So it'll be a, while, a, couple, a couple more elections anyways, before we see that, or at least one more election.
3: They'll be into the, into the next election. We'll see them okay. in the 22 election.
1: Oh, okay, all right. So, uh, of course, we talked about the House and the Senate seats. Um, uh, there's also a, a large number of uh, local ballot questions on, on the ballot uh, for various tax increases, roads, uh, you know, community support. And uh Ghanu and MERS both reported that they, those had a really high success rate, uh, almost, I think, 92 or 93% according to one, 89% according to the other. Um, are you surprised by that? And what do you think that indicates the fact that local taxpayers are, are willing to step up and, and support these these questions?
2: Yeah, so I'd be happy to chime in on that, Matt, because I, think it's, about, I, I think it's about time we quit being surprised by this, right? I mean, we... <laughs> Every time we have an election, we talk about this. Wow, look at all the success at the local level. But, you know, it's it's about time we quit being surprised and it's about time we start recognizing just the simple fact that people enjoy their local government, right? They enjoy their local communities and they're willing to support it. Um, you know, and I think we see that time and time again. And I think that's not not only a good thing for us, right, and, and our communities, um, but I think it's good recognition to say, you know, here is how people are engaging, and here's what they want, and hopefully some of that starts to carry over at the state level as we deliver our message.
1: Right. I mean, we hear so often that, um, you know, that that you know, particularly at the state level, that voters don't want to raise taxes, and, and no one likes more taxes. But at the same time, these results have proven time and again when there's services that people believe in, they will step up and support them with their wallet.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, and again, right, this is um, not a conversation that we should be having about whether or not we like to raise taxes or not. What we <laughs> right. what we like to do is is ensure that the things that we want and desire at the local level are there and, and provided for as they should be. Uh, and again, time and time um, in these elections, we see people demanding a particular level of service and continuing to step up uh, and willing to contribute to that. Uh, and, and, and again, that's not just about paying more taxes, that's about being you know, good stewards of your own community and committing uh, yourself and some of your finances in this case, uh, to making sure that it, it has the things you want and others want.
1: Right, for sure. Um, and our, of course, our state by city campaign, which I have the banner for behind, we talk a lot about the, you know, the, the state's broken system for funding its communities. Do you think that uh, Chris or John that the fact that we are having seen communities go to voters time again and ask for additional support is that indicate that the system is broken and that you know there needs to be a, a fix? Well,
3: I think you know John's absolutely right. When you look at these these changes and these uh, these elections that are going on, the local elections, local ballot questions you can see it's really a recognition that the state hasn't funded local governments properly and local governments have no choice. We've seen that in report after report um, that you know, just continues to reiterate and, and solidify this fact that the state has not stepped up and provided local governments with enough, uh, enough resources to support themselves. and So the voters are being asked to, whether it's roads, uh, public safety, parks, General operations, schools. I mean, I, I didn't. Even, I didn't see the number, but how many questions were there total uh, that we saw in the merge list? I mean, hundreds of local questions.
1: Yeah, there was a lot. I don't remember the number right off the top of my head, but it was a couple hundred, I think, or, or maybe a little bit less than that.
2: Well, and I would say too, Matt. That, you know, when we think about this, is as, as great as it is that that individuals step up and support their communities. We can get this done at the local level today it's not sustainable either. Right. And, and so I think that really gets back to, you know, what your question is here is, will this go ahead and, you know, start to, to make its way into the state level and recognizing, you know, that the system isn't working the way that it, that it needs to be. And I think that answer eventually will be yes. Now, whether that's going to be, you know, next week or, or next year, time, time will tell, but, I think what we have done and what Chris is referencing here, there's a number of studies and other things that have come to light even in the last couple of months, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, that are really highlighting uh, the deficiencies in our system. And the more and more that we see that, the more people we have in our echo chamber, the better it's going to be for us. And and I think we've seen the early steps in some of that change, and, and I think we hope to accelerate that here in the future.
1: Well, speaking about the future, uh, up next is a uh, lame duck session. So, if you guys can run through a little bit, what what's the schedule look like? How many days are they going to be in? When do they get back? And, and then uh, then we can get into what our legislative priorities are for this, for this upcoming lame duck session.
3: Well, I think, you know, before we go there, Matt, you know, one of the big things that I think as we look at the makeup of the new legislature, uh, We're a little excited, you know, to see a continuation of of what we saw this last year. I know Jen, I think we've got a a, a list somewhere, um, but we've been working closely with with uh, legislators, especially in the House and the Senate. Uh, House has quite a few with municipal background.
0: Yeah, and we're adding almost a dozen around 10, I think nine or 10 new representatives who have some um, local government background. Um, And I think that goes to a couple of the comments we saw um, when we were talking about local services, the more people we can have in the legislature that understand how things work at the local level um, is only a plus for us um, moving forward and trying to fix some of the, the broken um, municipal finance system, understanding why um, statewide preemptions don't work well. Um, so it is great. Uh, most of these new folks are actually uh, governing, you know, local governing body members, council members, uh, a DDA director, um, a clerk. So, um, so we're getting some some new folks here with some good some good background.
3: Right, and and bipartisan, man I mean, I think that's yes important too. We're seeing we're seeing municipal officials from both parties being elected. And that, again, just helps helps all of our cases we work uh, work and advocate on your behalf in Lansing.
1: Right, and that's that's important because, you know, hopefully, you know, if they have the former mayor, or former council member, they have that experience, they have that knowledge of revenue sharing, what that means, they have the knowledge of the proposal and Headley conflicts that we talk so much about. So you don't have to do that education with them. But we also have a group, right? Uh, like a municipal caucus that we we put together where we work with these. Can you talk a little bit about that, Chris?
3: Yeah, exactly. So this last term we noticed uh, one of the larger cohorts of elected officials with municipal backgrounds that we had seen in recent history. And so we decided, you know, let's, let's put that power to use and let's get those folks with those common backgrounds together and start talking with them. We met with them on uh, revenue sharing, met with them on municipal finance reform, we met with them on headling proposal A, talked preemption issues, organized uh, with them, just some get togethers just so they recognize and get to know each other and build those relationships with each other. And that's gonna be so important again, as we look at this, you know, close to a dozen folks coming in this term with municipal backgrounds, we're gonna use that and, and hopefully keep this group uh, engaged and working together, building a relationship with each other, building trust with each other, across the aisle, across the chambers, and working on key issues uh, you know, as we go into this into this lame duck grade. You talked about that. There are a lot of things. I know uh, Jen's working extremely hard on a number of issues right now, and having a group like that that we can go to kind of as our first line of defense or first line of attack, depending on the issue, that is, that's a huge help for us. We're not having to scramble to find a champion. We've got a built-in group of champions. So I uh, mean,
1: hi, Jen.
0: It doesn't mean they always remember exactly where they came from, but it's great, especially when many of them are, are you know, MML members and have relationships with other members and communities. Um, you may not be their constituent, but they'll still take your call because you have an existing relationship there to help remind them of um, why we need them to do something and and, and what needs to be done.
1: Okay, we did have a couple questions when we were talking about the the tax increases that were on the ballots that got that got approved, and and one person said, uh, you know, that in her community they have tax the residents to fix the streets but she said, you can't keep going back to that same, well, you can't keep taxing the poor. And a kind of a related question was, well, if the locals are willing to support, then the state doesn't need to step up. Right. And they're kind of, a, they kind of go, those two questions kind of go hand in hand and that, you know, we can't keep going to that well forever. Can we?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Matt, I think this is my point, right. It's, it's not sustainable. Right. I, I mean, in, in the absence of state action, yes, locals are willing to step up and they've done a great job of doing that. Um, but that's out of need and necessity, right? Not necessarily always out of want and desire. You know, the state should be a much better partner in this without question, right? And they shouldn't keep pushing the burden down to local units of government. We know that they should live up to the promise that they made in terms of statutory revenue sharing and that should be fully funded. You know, those go sometimes without said, although we should say it more often and make sure that people understand that this is a constant fight for us. So. You know, yeah, it's not sustainable long. I mean, we can't keep going back to, to the people uh, on every occasion, right? Every time we need a fire truck or every time we need the parts to, to, to be kept up. Um, the state needs to be, and, and hopefully will be here, uh, and, and we hope in the near future we'll be better partners in this. And, and we'll find, you know, the relief we need at the state level, both
3: from a, um, a revenue standpoint, but also from a policy standpoint. Well, and there's only so much appetite that the public can can handle when when we are limited solely to property taxes in most communities. So you know you can only go so far with your property tax load before voters just say, I can't do any more on property tax. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's something that we could start to see very soon here, because that's the only avenue that our members have access to, again, other than unless you're one of the, the 24 that has an income tax. And and those folks, frankly, right now are in, in real trouble because of COVID. So you know it's the system is broken. We need more diversity. We need more assistance. We need more support in order to continue to fund the services and the inf- frankly the infrastructure. That uh, in many places, I mean, I, I've talked to community after community where you know the the first thing they do when they try to handle handle a, a drop in revenue or a drop in, in budget is to defer maintenance. And you can only do that so long. We're seeing that with our road system, and so you get to the point where you can't you can't keep up. We're having these conversations with underground infrastructure. The governor just announced a big water infrastructure package. You know, so there's some recognition at the, at the state level, but you know there, there's not a sustainable model that, that the legislature has figured out how to take care of local governments and how, how to let local governments take care of themselves.
1: All right, well, let's uh, get into the lame duck now. Sorry, I, I did miss that one point. Thank you for circling back with me on that, Chris. Uh, what's the schedule look like for the upcoming lame, lame duck period?
0: I mean, Matt, it's this this year is a little hit or miss. It could be completely crazy or it could be, you know, working to do some legacy stuff and codify some COVID issues. Um, from um, past, you know, executive orders that the legislature and the governor need to work together on. Um, So it's a little bit tossed up. They are, you know, there's committees um, scheduled for tomorrow. Um, They'll be off on Wednesday for Veterans Day. Um, The typical ceremonial um, Veterans Day events will not be happening because of COVID, um, at least not in person. And then um, they're they're in session on Thursday. And then they're gone um, until uh, December 1st. We'll be back that that first week of December and um we'll be right in the thick of right out right out the gate in Lame Duck.
2: One, yeah, one Matt, qu- go ahead John. Man I was gonna say you know as much as uh, as lobbyists sometimes we wish Lame Duck would be calm and we all keep our fingers crossed that that it will be um, and and some might assume and and probably can make the argument for that because there's no switch in power and everything you know by the numbers looks very similar to, to this year compared to what it'll be in next session. Uh, as I was reminded the other day, um, you know, the governor's still going to want things. And, you know, because she's going to want to close out some of the stuff uh, that are her priorities here for this uh, first session that she's been governor the first two years of, of her first her first term. That leaves it ripe for negotiation and ripe for action. Um, and so I think it's safe to assume that it, it probably won't be a, a dud. Uh, it might might, it might not be as active in the past, but I fully anticipate we will be working um, more than just the typical uh, eight to five like we do sometimes, uh, which is typical for lame duck. And I think you know we'll, we'll continue to see that when they come back in December for those three weeks.
1: Right, uh, until we get to into our agenda, there was a question related to this, of course, as, as you may have read you know, the House uh, there was a meeting, a special meetings on Saturday. Um, how serious is the push to investigate the election results, and will that impact lame duck activities? Is the question from one of our yeah, I,
2: You know, I'm I'm not into speculating as as to you know where they're gonna take it, right? I mean, I I think you know the elections out there, you know, there's enough you know procedures in place and. You know, enough checks and balances that that will take care of itself. And and I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, as you start to see this move uh, over the next couple of weeks, I don't see a big impact on, on lame duck, right? I mean, just as I was talking, they're still going to have their priorities, they're going to want to get things done. And it's going to be those types of things that drive action those last three weeks. Um, and I don't think that that this and, and the rhetoric that's around the election right now will last into that period. But that's just my speculation and I've been wrong before, so maybe I'll be wrong again, but uh, that's just how I see it right now.
1: Okay, all right, let's talk about our priorities. What are some of the things that we're hoping to accomplish uh, during this time? Jen, I know you've been working on a couple of issues. One is the the gravel mining situation, and uh, the other is the short-term rental, so go ahead and dive into those a little bit.
0: Yeah, well I'd say right now number one push two that we're proactively working on is pushing out that Um, End of the year deadline for no reason virtual meetings in terms of the open meetings act. Um, We know that that is a huge priority for members, especially with COVID raging again across the state. Um, So that is something we are already actively working on. Um, You know, the legislature with the House. um, They're not going to be up in in most we expect or anticipate most likely until the end of February, beginning of March um, to be voting on on issues. So we're really trying to push that out and get get some changes with that again. And then yes, um, right now, I would say this week, what we need members doing this week is contacting their legislators about Senate Bill 431. Uh, if there's enough support, we're going to see a vote on the Senate floor. And so we don't want there to be support for that bill moving forward. It's a preemption. It's got a lot of, lot of issues. I'm sorry. Is, is that I the
1: Mining go Bill, 431? 31?
0: Yes, 431 is the, the aggregate mining preemption. Okay. And I mean, I think the number one message and question when you're reaching out to your senator is, what's the rush? The Senate's returning at the beginning of next year. The House um, Republicans still have the majority in the House come next term. Um, so what's the rush to push this through during lame duck? This bill needs a lot of work still. And I think that really needs to be our message is that we're still at the table. We're still wanting to negotiate. This is not a good bill. Um, there needs to be um, some local oversight with very serious consequence. And why rush it through right now? Let's work on it next year. Let's do it right and um, and continue to work on it. So, that again, Thursday. If they have the support Thursday, they're gonna they're gonna bring that up for a vote. So please contact your senators um, before Thursday, talking about Senate Bill four thirty one, asking them what the rush is um, to get this through. The other things that you know around preemption we're tracking, um, still the short term rental issue. There are a couple of bills introduced over in the Senate, 1144 and 1145. Um, We are going to be pushing back on those. Uh, They're not any different than any of the other um, really preemption legislation we've seen around short-term rentals. It's kind of combining some different things that have been in the House in this past two years. Um, but then there's Senate Bill 1196, which uh, Senator Horn introduced that um, it just says that locals cannot outright ban um, short-term rentals, uh, that you can regulate them, you just can't outright ban them everywhere. Um, and it also sets up the, an assessment, uh, kind of a local bed tax, that um, will go to fund Pure Michigan. And 98% of that right now would go to the fund. 2% would actually go back to the local community um, that's hosting where the Airbnb or short-term rental is. Um, And so this is the first time we've actually gotten some uh, movement with getting money to go back to the locals for some of those costs associated with uh, the tourist economy. So uh, right now we're thinking this is a great alternative option to everything else that's been out there the last few years. So that's Senate Bill 1196. We're expecting in early December when they come back that um, those short term rentals 1144, 1145, and this 1196 will actually be up for a hearing um, to have more conversations on it in the Senate.
1: Okay, thank you, Jen. Matt,
3: before we go, I I think there's one thing that's really important as we talk about this, the Open Meetings Act issue, and I know we've mentioned it before, but timing is really important um, because of this is the end of a term. This is a true lame duck. All bills that have been introduced over the course of these last two years expire at the end of this legislative session at the end of December. So if a bill isn't done by the end of December, it has to be reintroduced and start all over next term. So when we talk about the the OMA issue, we talk about the sunset date of December 31st in that in the current law, the importance there is we've got to get something done now or we wait until the new legislature gets organized, which will be sometime mid-February, end of February, before we start seeing action there. So, uh, you know, it is imperative once we get this rolling and get, get things in place and have a bill ready uh, that members engage on that uh, because we will need to get that done in these in this short period in, in lame duck.
1: Thank you, Chris. Um, so, so obviously we're going to be uh, busy with uh, state stuff. Is there anything else on lame duck that we're working on that we want to make sure we mention?
2: You know, Matt, I'll, I'll mention one thing quick because I know it's come up a number of times and and it relates to the governor's executive orders that went away, uh, as a result of the, the court ruling here, and it deals with water shutoffs. Um, you know, so the current state of play is that, you know, we are essentially in that pre-pandemic environment for communities, right, where they are able to go ahead and, you know, shut water off for late payment or, or, or pass due bills. You know, there is a piece of legislation. It's, It's Senate Bill 241 and and I hesitate a little bit to say it only because if people go out and read that bill, it is a moratorium on water shutoffs in perpetuity. Um, Now, I I cautious our members uh, in looking at that not to panic only because that's gonna be the vehicle bill for which any sort of extension of the governor's EO would be codified in the statute. Uh, and and the latest version that we saw of that would extend water shutoffs, uh, much like the governor's executive order did, to the end of the, the current calendar year. That being said, we're sitting here on, on, you know, November 9th with the legislature unable to take action on that bill in a form to send it to the governor's desk until early December, so should that bill get some traction I would fully anticipate, much like we look at the or the uh, OMA legislation, that you might see some extension to March 1st or somewhere in that first quarter of the year, knowing that the legislature will have very little ability to act just because of the, the people getting used to the new environment in that first quarter of the year. Um, we've been very direct uh, about, you know, obviously the the need to make sure we protect public health and safety, but at the same time making sure that we understand that uh, you can't just have a, a system that allows people not to pay forever uh, and not shut their water off. And so I, I anticipate there will be some sort of short-term aspect to this and then probably a longer-term aspect in terms of what we think about water service provision. Uh, but what that would be, I'd, it'd be too early to speculate right now, but everything that I'm, I'm hearing and seeing so far is that there would be a short-term extension of the governor's executive order uh, on water shutoffs, in terms of the moratorium.
1: Okay. Uh, re- somewhat related to that, uh, regarding COVID, Jen, you talked a earlier about the you know the need to, to address and allow communities to keep meeting virtually, uh, probably beyond December, with the numbers spiking. Uh, and someone else, uh, do you, we expect any action this week or in December on that particular issue?
0: I, I mean, everything there is going to be action this week, but it's all going to be behind the scenes. Um, okay. So. But that's definitely, like I said, a priority for lame duck. Probably wouldn't be acted upon um, until they come back here in early December. Um, and like I said, get across the finish line before they gavel out for the end of the year.
1: Okay. And then the other question is, where are we with the veterans exemptions? I'm not sure if that's the veterans. There's not really no, a veterans good. exemptions for uh, for virtual meetings. That's more for people in military service. I don't know if that's what they're asking or if that's a separate
3: that's probably the property tax exemption for disabled veterans that we've been working on for a number of years, Matt. Okay. So just from you know from the tax side, there's a number of things going on right now. Um, you know, there's obviously every interest group under the sun has their special tax cut they're trying to get done before the end of the year. Um, we're dealing with uh, Meyer Corporation, and they they want to exempt their warehouse equipment. Um, Personal property tax. We've got the solar, uh, the solar developers wanting to exempt solar equipment for that uh, they when they're uh, distributing solar for the utility companies. Uh, we've got a number of different, like I said, special interest issues like that that are coming up uh, and that we're defending against. And again, kind of saying let's let's take a different look at all this instead of one off uh, every time somebody comes in. Uh, but the other big things I think that are even more important for league members are, you know, one, if you're one of those 24 city income tax communities that I talked about, uh, you're being, you know, double whammyed right now uh, as a result of COVID and state law. So the state's uh, budget has been propped up this last year by withholdings from unemployment benefits and the enhanced unemployment benefits the federal government allowed. Uh, City income tax communities are ineligible uh, to tax those unemployment benefits. So the feds and the state will tax them, the cities do not. So there's an immediate loss of revenue from any of those, uh, any of those residents who those cities have, uh, who have been on unemployment. And the other one is this whole conversation about non-resident income tax and remote workers and how exposed are some of our communities who have large uh, portion of their workforce uh, who are non-residents and who haven't been coming into the office in the host community. So those are two big questions uh, and, and that's a problem that hits in lame duck here because the minute we get to the new year, those W-2s go out and people will start paying their taxes, uh, based upon those W-2s. And so we really need to address this issue right now to try and find some way to provide relief to those 24 communities, uh, on the city income tax side. On the property tax side though, the, the problem also starts, uh, in 21 because December 31st is tax day for, for property taxes. So as we move into the new year, those valuations that are set on December 31st of this year are appealable, especially as we're talking some of our commercial uh, businesses, vacancy rates. Uh, you know, There's an ability for taxpayers to come in at those March boards and review in 21 and start appealing their value if they think COVID has impacted them and can make that case. And so those are two key things as we look at at the, at the end of this year that are so important to address before we get into the new year and, End up, uh, you know, potentially with property tax losses, like we saw, uh, you know, during the Great Recession, and communities losing giant chunks of their tax base that they never get to get back because of the way Headline Proposal Layer are set up. So we're working on a couple of efforts uh, in lame duck here to try and deal with both of those. Uh, we've had some great uh, third-party validation of that. Uh, no, Betsy, if you've got the uh, Matt, the the Lincoln Institute report that came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, was a great analysis that the C.S. Mott Foundation helped fund, talking about how broken Michigan's municipal finance system is and the the need for repair there and fix. We had the Michigan League for Public Policy do an analysis of the impacts on revenue sharing. I know Eric Lufer from the Citizens Research Council just had information come out. uh, And John, you've done some work with our own city business collaborative uh, on this exact same issue.
1: Uh, Regarding your one point, uh, Michael up in Boyn City asks if there's anyone in particular they should reach out on on the virtual meetings issue.
0: (laughs) All right, I'll mute myself. The legislators, uh, your senator and your representative, your current representative, um, and explain to them um, your story, what's going on in your community. I know we've had some members contact us that come January 1st, they can't even accommodate um, the social distancing and occupancy requirements, the gathering sizes in their current spaces, and they are going to have to spend dollars to rent a bigger space. Um, Those are stories to share, Um, as well as come uh, January 1st, assuming that DHHS is going to continue uh, restrictions around gathering sizes, um, there is a Uh, what is the word I'm looking for, Uh, when it comes to the Open Meetings Act and those DHHS um, orders, there is going to be a conflict because DHHS is not able to um, allow you to not abide by all the OMA requirements. So there's a conflict come. That's another reason we need this pushed out. Um, Unless they're going to give DHHS orders, um, the same ability as the governor's executive orders, things like that, come January 1st, uh, if that no reason virtual meeting expires, you now um, are limited for gathering sizes, um, you're now limited with the social distancing requirements, and um, you just, you have a conflict. So those personal stories you need to be sharing with your legislators.
1: And related to that, uh, Nate asks if we expect any other uh, health orders to come out this week from probably with DHS. Have we heard anything about any more coming out or?
0: Not, no, we don't have any updated or inside information on that right now.
1: Okay. And one of the questions that we get kind of relates into what I wanted to ask you, John, and that's about a federal stimulus package. Um, and the question was, uh, you know, basically it, it's it's saying, shouldn't the funding that comes from the federal go straight to uh, underserved, underserved uh, communities? And I know that's something we've been fighting for uh, to have direct uh, uh, with, you know, Direct funding to our local community. What's the latest on the federal stimulus, and would that address that concern?
2: Yeah, so I I think there are two things here, uh, Matt, and and I'll start with the the question that was posed in the chat because I think part of that was when we were talking about you know the the use of um, you know local property taxes and the success at the at the local ballot, and you know should the feds in some way step up and. You know, there's a lot of things that the feds can do and do do. And even when we look at infrastructure specific, right? Um, in addition to the, the, you know, other things that the feds may do around, you know, housing and, and stuff like that. But if we look at just infrastructure specific for a second, I mean, they have failed too, um, to make sure that they're providing enough investment, uh, both to the state and to the local level. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, what's going on, uh, with the transportation trust fund in terms of how we fund, you know, roads and bridges across this country, I mean, that's woefully short on the verge of bankruptcy, and that's why the feds have put general fund money, so to speak, in into it uh, at that level. Um, when we think about the broader aspect of what's going on right now in terms of current situation with the pandemic and how we think about uh, a next stimulus plan, I, I think we remain hopeful. You know the noise in DC right now is a little different than it's ever been before. Um, and I think that we just need to recognize that. Uh, and hopefully there's a, a sense of of normalcy and calm that returns in the coming you know days and and weeks and allows the legislature the space to go ahead and and work on that. What we do know is there is an ongoing conversation still. while that might not be in the headlines in the news. Um, those those conversations and discussions are ongoing, much like we anticipated they would post election. Uh, but I think you know part of what the trend is here is um, you know not knowing who's going to have control of the Senate potentially is going to be an issue, uh, and also the fact that in at the national level Republicans picked up a few House seats, uh, not enough to split majority, but enough to maybe think about um you know not having a package as is, is large as what the current size is in terms of two billion or roughly two billion dollars so all of these things are are at play but the bottom line at the end of the day is our advocacy and and, and how we treat both this and, and other issues at the federal level is yes absolutely we would like to see that that direct impact at the local level and funding should flow that way
1: all right well thank you john So I think we're kind of getting toward the end. Is there anything else I missed that you guys wanna jump in on?
0: Matt, there's a question um, in here that says, so the limited capacity would be a reason to meet remotely, correct? Um, Not sure I understand the question exactly, but um, I think the limited, if you are limited, you know, come January 1st, if there's not an extension for no reason virtual meetings, if you are going to have to rent a space, spend public dollars to rent a bigger space because you'll have to meet in person without that extension, um, that is the story that you should be conveying. Uh, limited capacity is the piece of it. It's more about keeping people safe during a pandemic. Um, if you have folks who have um, vulnerable, you know, household members, and maybe they can't claim a medical condition, but they have someone within their household. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces to, to the what's going on here. So I. Unless, uh, Polly, you want to ask the question a little differently. No, the limited capacity would not be the only reason. Um, It's telling that story about having to spend dollars that you didn't budget for. Rent a bigger venue to host your meeting because of you'd have to be social distancing. You'd have to be able to accommodate public, things like that.
1: I think she's asking there, say, if the DHS says you can't have groups of 20 or or more or 20 or less, is that in itself a reason to be able to meet virtually? And you're saying, No. no, it's not.
0: Because DHHS cannot, um, cannot, I guess, forego any of the meeting requirements under OMA that a local unit of government has to follow, regardless okay. of the DHHS orders. Okay.
1: Okay. All good. Any other things, John? Okay. So I uh, just want to lay out we do expect the uh, uh, I have a question here. Uh, I do. Before I get into that, I just want to mention we do uh, have laid out our, our Monday morning live schedule for the rest of the year. We hope uh, we're going to go uh, with lame duck coming up. We're going to go back so go uh, to back weeks starting November thirtieth, uh, December seventh, December fourteenth. So we're going to go back to back to back weeks on that st- because we expect a lot of activity and a lot of things to talk about. Uh, one question here. Um, what about other direction as far as meeting in person, but now excluding those who are in quarantine? Um, Jen?
0: that's a, I mean, that's a local decision on what makes the most sense for um, your local governing bodies, these public bodies. Um, there's nothing saying that you necessarily can't meet in person if you can um, meet the requirements of DHHS, um, but there is the no reason virtually meeting through the end of the year. Again, I mean, that is a local local context of what's going on in your local community with your public board um, if you choose to meet virtually or choose to meet in person or not.
1: Right. But that would be another good example to share to get that extended past December 31st to say, hey, we have someone who's self-quarantined and that they can't make it to the meeting. It would be nice to be able to extend this so that they they can still participate virtually. <laughs>
0: And I just see a comment just popped in um, from Paula um, about the Mayor, you know, I think this is about declaring a local state of emergency. Um, That is an option. You want to work with your local municipal attorney on um, how you do that and the steps needed uh, to make that happen.
1: So like if the I'm in Genesee County, if the Genesee County Health Department issued some kind of declaration, then that would potentially allow them to meet virtually, is that what you're saying?
0: Yes. Come um, January 1st through the end of 2021, um, there could be a locally uh, or state um, declaration of emergency or disaster um, that if um, meeting in person puts the public or the public body's health or safety um, at risk, then yes, you would be able to um, meet virtually in those instances. And we have heard from some of our members um, that There's possibly issues regarding how locally you can um, declare one of those states of emergency, so that's something you need to work with your um, local municipal attorney on.
1: Is that something that the health department has to do or could your mayor also declare emergency or is that something that has to be done at the county level?
0: So it can be done at the county level, no questions asked. Um, Doesn't mean that all counties are going to do it um, by any means. Um, Locally, it's going to depend on if you have a charter. What's authorized in your charter um, or how you declare states of emergency, local states of emergencies for other events. So it's, it's, again, it's going to, there's not a one size fits all answer here.
3: Okay, I think that's, Matt, as we talk about this issue and the importance of it, I think, obviously, we needed to get something done very fast in September uh, because the, how the lawsuit impacted the governor's executive orders at the time. So we got, we got a bill done uh, and Jen worked extremely hard with uh, Chris Johnson from our team and our municipal attorneys folks, the Michigan Association of Municipal Attorneys uh, to get that bill crafted. Inevitably, there are questions and some some issues that folks are looking for some additional clarity on. How do you declare a local disaster or a local emergency? Uh, so I think some of that is also what Jen's working on here. If we can get an extension and get some clarity on those, uh, the, what, is, what does a medical allowance mean? And those are the types of things that I think as we go back into lame duck here, we'll look to tighten up now that we have a little bit of time, a little bit of time, uh, to, to try and get in and, and, and make this good so that everybody has a common understanding of what it takes to have a locally declared emergency, what it takes to have a locally declared disaster, what are the medical exceptions, and what, you know, how does all this lay out?
1: One question related to this from Facebook, wouldn't the DHHS order be a declaration of an emergency that would be covered in the 2021 rules?
0: No, it's not because the the wording in um, Senate Bill 1108 that was passed, um, it says uh, declared pursuant to a law or charter by the governor or local officials. So it's only saying um, those emergencies declared by the governor, it's not recognizing any other uh, departments at the state in that. Okay.
1: Uh, if somebody asked where on Facebook can this be found this is live streamed on the league's Facebook page so that's where that question was coming from last thing I did want to mention is that you know the our Lansing team that you see here to do, do not do all these changes and all this work just on themselves by themselves they need the help of our members and, and a lot of the things that we're doing are, are by guidance from our members through a series of legislative committees that we have um, those committees are going all the time but we are Currently uh, looking for new members. Uh, there'll be an email going out to uh, league members shortly. So if you look for that and you're interested in serving on one of these legislative committees, uh, you know, look for that email, and then there's a there's an application that you fill out, um, and then we get going on those in January. Chris, anyone anything you want to say about the importance of these committees?
3: Well, so these are these are really critical as as our team, state federal affairs team go through legislative issues that have been introduced, things that we've been notified are coming, or implementation issues as the departments are trying to implement new laws or new policies. We're able to use those committee members as kind of that first sounding board of, they go back and they work with others in their community, uh, in their municipal government to help us understand, John and Jen and I are smart, but but we don't know everything. And uh, we rely on our members, our finance directors, our public works directors, our clerks, our police chiefs, our uh, economic development directors and planning and zoning directors. We rely on all those folks and more to help us as we comb through some very technical issues uh, in, in statute and in proposed legislation and in departmental rules and regulations. So having folks willing to participate on those committees gives us, it gives us again, that first that first group that we can reach out to, uh, to help. And you know, so like I said, that email will be coming out from from our team uh, here very soon in the next couple of weeks. And we encourage folks to respond and respond to the survey if they have interest. And those appointments take place for two years uh, starting in January. The other thing I want to mention, Matt, and I did post the link, um, as we move into Lame Duck, we'll obviously have the back-to-back-to-back of Monday Morning Lives. But we'll also be communicating quite frequently through our Inside 208 legislative blog. And so I encourage members, if you're not signed up for that, please go to that link sign up, uh, enter your email address, and subscribe to our legislative blog. Both John and uh, Jen, myself, Harrisana will be joining us next week back from her leave, and we will be updating members as regularly as possible on new issues that are popping up, especially, again, in that very constrained time period when things are going to happen really fast.
1: Yeah. And that's important to sign up for that because what that means is you'll get an email anytime there's a new blog posted. So if Chris posts something like act now, we need to contact these legislators because there's a bill that's either we support or a bill that we don't support and we need your input on. That's important. That timeliness is often very important. So having you subscribe to that and get those emails right away uh, is very helpful to us when you respond to them. So that said, we got a question from Ann. Jen's going to take care of that. So I think we're good there. Uh, Thank you guys again um, for another great edition of Monday Morning Live. And uh, we'll be back uh, again, um, not till the end of the month, November 30th, uh, because legislature will be on a a break. But obviously, if something big comes up, we can always have a special one of these. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'm Matt Bach with the Michigan Municipal League. Thanks, Chris, Jen, and John. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.